Hey everybody, welcome to episode 20 of The Theological Arsonist. I cannot believe that we've already done 20 episodes, and I just want to thank each and every one of you for your continued support of my ministry and your continued support of this podcast. It means absolutely more than you could ever know. Um, I do want to remind everybody to please go down in the description and support the sponsor who has been so faithful in sponsoring these episodes, sending me coffee, um, Emory House Coffee Company. They are wonderful. Please click the link below, buy the coffee, support them. So without further ado, we're going to get into episode 20. And as you might have noticed, the title is called... 2020 as a post-millennial. Now, while I'm going to spend a decent amount of time talking about eschatology specifically, I want to recap all of 2020 um, to you and specifically share how God has grown me theologically um, as a man, as a husband. 2020, without a doubt, has been the best year of my life. Wow, might be shocking to some people, but genuinely 2020 has been the best year of my life. Um, This episode is completely unscripted. I typically write out an outline of what I'm going to say, or I have guests, you know, who have their outlines or whatnot. This is totally unscripted. This is just off the top of my head. I want this to be raw. I want it to be real. I want it to be me processing my emotions and just going through what I believe has been the most spiritually nourishing year of my life. So without further ado, let's go all the way back to the beginning. So in January of 2020, starting this year, I'm a freshly married man. I got married in September of 2019, so I've only been married a little over a year. I was enjoying myself. I was loving being married. It was wonderful. And I was pursuing God faithfully as I could, uh, pursuing where he wanted to take me with ministry um, in the future. And at the beginning of 2020, I was a three and a half, four point Calvinist, slightly reformed in my theology, and agnostic when it came to the end times. Now, for those of you who have been accustomed to my teaching for a while, you're probably going, wow, Jonah was barely reformed and an agnostic when it came to eschatology at the beginning of 2020, and I will tell you that is exactly the way it was. And I would have never guessed, looking back, that God would have used TikTok, (laughs) a dumb little app where you make 60-second videos. Mostly you go on there and it's just trash. I would have never guessed that God would have taken that app and brought into my life some of the most wonderful friends and brothers in Christ that I have ever met. And I mean that, and I know you guys are watching it right now, so I just want to take the time and I want to thank God for a few specific people who have been monumental in shaping me as a Christian. Without a doubt, the number one guy would be my good friend Andrew Davis. Andrew, if you're watching this, I just want to say, if I did not have you in my life, I would be in a very different place right now. You have challenged me. You have sharpened me in such profound ways, and I owe a lot to you. So thank you, brother. Another guy I would like to thank is I just want to thank Joshua Janier and Hector Pagan. 
you guys, I haven't had nearly as much time talking with you two as, as I have some other people, but there is just a, a zeal and a passion for the Lord in you that I, my heart just attaches to so deeply. And so I, I just feel so, my, my heart is bound to you two as brothers in a way that is just so profound. I also want to thank my, my dear brother, uh, Jeremiah Short, who just recently came on. Um, if he hadn't prompted me to study the subject of paedo-baptism um, and just the covenants a little more deeply, I don't know where I would be right now. And so, brother, I just want to thank you for your faithful exegesis of Scripture, your faithfulness in defending the gospel, and all of that. And there's so many other people I could name. Um, my brother Sean Knopf, uh, bro, you have been a huge, huge part of my life, and I just want to thank you for all you've done. You, you've, you've been a supporter of mine since way back when. Uh, one of the first people I met here on TikTok, um, and we've become great friends. Um, so I just want to thank you as well, brother. And so I know I'm doing a lot of talking right now and just thanking people, but these are people who have helped shape me and mold me and come alongside me this past year. And they have just been wonderful. And I believe lifelong friends of mine. So thank you, all of you. Um, and the ones who are unnamed, you know who you are and you know that I love you as well. So going back at the beginning, I really began 2020 with this in mind. I want to know how the end of the world is going to play out. That was my mindset. I want to know the way the end of the world is going to play out, and I'm not satisfied with what I've heard. And so I decided in my heart that I was going to put everything I thought I knew about eschatology, everything I thought I knew about the end times, up on the shelf. I was going to put it away and I was going to take a step back as though I had never learned anything and go from there. And so through this, I basically took each main system of eschatology. So you have dispensational premillennialism, you have um, historic premillennialism, you have amillennialism, and you have postmillennialism. And within there, you have the different interpretative uh, interpretation methods. You have futurism, historicism, idealism, preterism. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to take time to study each and every one of these and just pray, Lord, lead me to the truth. Lord, lead me to what is most glorifying to you, most edifying to the body of Christ, um, and most, um, most accurate to the text of Scripture. Ultimately, that's what I was looking for. So, having grown up a dispensational premillennial, I decided to start there. And so I started studying dispensationalism, and it was the first time I had ever studied it. I had learned it, I had known it, in theory but had never actually gone to the Word of God to see if what I was taught was was there. You know, and I, I find a lot of people who are dispensationals have the same thing. They know it in theory because they've been taught it, but they when you say, well, where is that in Scripture, they're not going to be able to show it to you. And so I started studying, and I want you to I want you to look here. This is my eschatology shelf. These books right here, these books right here, these are my amillennial books. Starting at this little book right here and going all the way through to here, 
These are all my dispensational books. I have more books on dispensationalism than I do on any other type of eschatology. So all you people that say that I'm closed-minded and I only listen to my own eschatology, bro, I got a lot of eschatology on that shelf and the majority is dispensational. So I started studying dispensationalism. And as I looked into the text of scripture, I was exceptionally dissatisfied with what I found. I could not find anything that the dispensational system taught. And beyond that, there were some things that I was learning about dispensationalism that I had never heard before that to me were bordering on blasphemous. And I know that's a strong word, but I want to clarify what I mean. One of the things I found out is that dispensationalism teaches that in the millennial kingdom, when Christ returns again, pre-millennial, that there will be a temple. And in that temple, there will be a reinstituted animal sacrificial system and priesthood. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know anybody that can read the book of Hebrews and come to the conclusion that that is something that God will have as part of his plan. The Lamb of God, once for all, sacrificed for the sins of the world. And in the millennial kingdom, you're going to tell me that there are going to be animal sacrifices to atone for sins? And now some dispensationalists will say, no, it's not to atone for sins. It's it's as a memorial in the same way we have the Lord's Supper. But the funny thing is, is all the passages that they point to that point to these realities, none of them use the word memorial. They all use the word sacrifice. And so to change it to a memorial is to stray from the scriptures. And so people like uh, Dr. Thomas Ice, he's consistent. He says it doesn't say memorial. It says sacrifice. Therefore, it must be literal animal sacrifices. And to be frank with you, I find this idea blasphemous. And I did at the time when I was studying this. And so that was really the straw that broke the camel's back for me that led me away from the dispensational system for good. And I said, I cannot get this to come out of scripture. So that was the main thing. But I I couldn't find the pre-trib rapture, for example, in scripture. I couldn't find the idea that Jesus had postponed the kingdom in scripture. I couldn't find the idea of two distinct peoples in scripture. There were lots of problems. And so I decided, well, being brought up in a premillennial home, I'm going to see what historic premillennialism is all about. And this was kind of my introduction to more of a covenantal way of thinking. Because most people, when they hear dispensational, they associate it with the end times. But dispensationalism is a theology for reading the text. It's, a, it's really a systematic theology in a lot of ways of reading the text. And so the, con- the counter to dispensationalism would be really covenant theology. And so historic premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism would really fall into these categories of uh, covenant theology for the most part. Sometimes you'll find a little bit of new covenant theology mixed in here, um, but covenant theology is a big one. So I started studying historic premillennialism. It made a lot more sense, but I was still unsatisfied. There were things that I was just going, I'm not sure I can see this in scripture, but this looks pretty good. This looks much better than than uh, dispensationalism. It makes more sense. I can see its flow throughout scripture. And for a little bit, I felt pretty convinced that this was a safe place. 
However, I had promised myself at the beginning that I was not going to settle on any specific eschatology until I had thoroughly studied each one. So I read books on historic premillennialism. I watched documentaries on historic premillennialism. I took notes. I studied my Bible. I highlighted things. And I did this just like with dispensationalism. I went through and I found this to be a very compelling but not fully convincing case. And so I moved on to post-millennialism. Um, so I studied post-millennialism, and I really don't think I fully understood it at the start. It sounded to me like what post-millennialism was saying is that the world is going to be perfect and gradually increase in its perfection as time goes on. So for me, I was very hesitant about post-millennialism because of my misunderstanding. And I'm not sure how I misunderstood this, but I think a lot of times, I think one of the main things that people struggle with when they hear post-millennialism is that's the image that comes to mind. Oh, you guys just think everything's hunky-dory out there. You think the world's getting better and better and better. Ugh, you guys are totally delusional, right? And so I was kind of a little bit uncomfortable because especially coming from a dispensational background, I'm like, there's no way things are getting better. There's no way things are getting better. This is a ridiculous eschatology. And so I will be honest, I put post-millennialism away rather quickly and did not study it nearly as deeply as I should have. I really, really did not give it the time of day. I moved immediately to amillennialism and started studying it. And amillennialism clicked with me. By the end of my study, I had told myself, Jonah, I think you're an amillennial. And so I... I hesitantly called myself amillennial, didn't really make it public, um, kept it to myself for a while, and continued to study. I continued to read books. Um, my my two books that I highly recommend for amillennialism is uh, the book Amillennialism by uh, Kim Riddlebarger and the book uh, Ki Kingdom Come. There it is. Kingdom Come by Sam Storms. These were two very, very good books. And Sam Storms' book was my introduction to preterism now in sam storms he was talking about matthew 24 the olivet discourse and he broke it down in his book and proclaimed that matthew 24 was primarily dealing with the destruction of jerusalem in 70 a.d now i really didn't know anything about 70 a.d at this point i went wow there was a huge event in 70 a.d i had no clue I'd heard about it briefly, but it was always kind of just a, the temple was destroyed by the Romans, move on. It was never seen in my mind as a biblically significant event. And so I went back into Matthew and I began to study Matthew 24 like nothing else. I studied it, I studied it, I studied it, I studied it. I took notes, I, I, took, I went to the original language, I studied it in the original language. I studied it in as many different translations as I can get my hand on. I studied Mark and Luke's account paralleled beside it. Matthew 24, without a doubt, is the most studied passage in my entire Bible. <laughs> without a doubt, I've spent hundreds of hours, if not thousands of hours, studying Matthew chapter 24. Um... So this became an obsession of mine, was learning about the historical context surrounding all the different passages in Scripture. And I began to see that preterism was a very, very compelling, very compelling um, biblical way 
of interpretation. Not because, you know, it just is easy, but because it actually made sense with the historical context and with what was being said. When Jesus says to his disciples, not one stone here will be left on another, and they say, when will these things be? Hmm, it seems pretty obvious that the context is surrounding the these things being the temple and the destruction of the temple. I began to notice the parallels between the New Testament and the Old Testament. When Jesus says the stars will fall from the sky, the sun will no longer give its light. And I had heard all my life, these are literal things that are going to happen. Well, when I went back to the Old Testament and read Isaiah, I found out, you know what? Isaiah is talking about the destruction of a city using decreation language. And so my brain began to pick up on these things and I began to study the Bible in a new way. And as I studied the Bible, this is when something really big happened. When I started studying the Bible in its context, in its historical context, I got to the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation was a book that I had been really avoiding for the most part because of how daunting the task was to try to understand it. Up until this point, I had pretty much said, hey, I'm an idealist when it comes to the book of Revelation. It's kind of the default amillennial position. And to be honest, the idealist position is a very convenient position. You basically say it has no true fulfillment. It's just a picture of good and evil throughout the ages. A beast back in John's day could be a beast today. Uh, the number of the beast back then could be a number of the beast today. There's really no specific context that it's surrounding, which makes it a very easy, relaxing interpretation, because there's really no wrong answer. Now here's the deal. I decided, with this newfound interest in preterism, to study the book of Revelation. Hmm. <laughs> And as I studied the book of Revelation, I came to a conclusion, a very strong conclusion, that the book of Revelation was written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem and was primarily dealing with the destruction of Jerusalem. The evidence was just far too compelling. I read this book by Ken Gentry. It's called Before Jerusalem Fell. It's his doctoral dissertation on an early date for the book of Revelation, somewhere in the mid-60s. So I read this book um, after I had already, I didn't even read the book, I, I came to these conclusions on my own that this is pri primarily dealing with Jerusalem, and then read his book, and my, my suspicion was confirmed. And from that point on, I was a very diehard partial preterist when it came to much of biblical scripture. Now, Here's the problem when you become a partial preterist, especially in reference to the book of Revelation. You begin to see, hmm, if a lot of the book of Revelation has already been fulfilled, such as the kingdoms of this world have now become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, maybe I should go back and revisit postmillennialism. <laughs> so basically... I come to this partial preteristic perspective, and I go back and I start studying postmillennialism with fresh eyes. And as I studied postmillennialism, it began to make more sense to me. I began to see they're not saying that things just get better and better and better. What they're saying is that through the rule of Jesus Christ, the world is being sanctified unto its final redemption when he returns. That makes a lot of sense. That seems to follow redemptive history. And so I looked at these kind of parallels between... 
you see the sin entered the world and there was this decrease and deterioration through sin. And you see that ultimately through the cross of Christ, there was a restoration period that took place. And so really, I began to see this picture that maybe we're not looking at a doomy, gloomy ending to this created order. Maybe we are looking towards a wonderful, glorious reality ahead of us. But there was a specific portion of scripture that I read that broke me. And when I mean broke me, I, I mean broke me. <laughs> I want to turn there now. And I, I, I want to go as far to say that this was the most significant moment in my Christian walk. And some may say, well, it wasn't salvation. Well, yes, obviously salvation. But this was one of the moments that was so profoundly impactful to me that it has, it has literally changed the fabric by which I am a Christian. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, he's speaking of the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection in general in chapter 15. And what's really interesting is I read in verse 22, really through verse 26. Verse 22 through 26 is what convinced me to become a post-millennial. Verse 22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And I paused there, and I just mulled those words over and over in my head. In Adam all die, in Christ all shall be made alive. In Adam all die, in Christ all shall be made alive. And I kept thinking about this. And it kind of hit me, like a ton of bricks right there, that if by the end of time in history, the vast majority of people are lost and dead in their sins, and a minority, a small handful of the quote-unquote elect come to faith in Jesus Christ, then ultimately the power and sin of Adam has had a more profound effect on humanity than the work of the cross. And I want you listening right now to realize the significance of that statement. I want you to realize the significance of that statement. If the end of human history is, is the world is crashing and burning, evil has taken over every pore of reality, then the work of sin through Adam has had a more profound impact on creation than the cross and finished work of Jesus Christ. That snapped in my mind, and I just went, no, that cannot be. That cannot be. That is not what the text is saying. So in Adam all die, so too in Christ all shall be made alive. This is a profound and beautiful and massive reality. I was almost already convinced by this, but then I read on. 
but each in his own order, speaking of the resurrection. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Here's the order of resurrection. You have Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to him. That would be all of us Christians. It doesn't say, then comes a thousand-year reign of Christ. It says, then comes the end. Then comes the end. When he delivers, he delivers this kingdom up to the Father after he destroys every rule and authority and power. Verse 25, for he must reign until all his enemies have been put under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, I read this, and something happened to me that day. Something so profound, something so beautiful, something so remarkable. I was struck by the reality for the first time in my life. And this is a really scary thing for a Christian who's been a Christian for so long. I've been a Christian almost my entire life. To admit that this year was the first year in my life where I actually was hit with the reality that Jesus is king now. I can't express to you guys how, how amazingly impactful that is to a person. To go, Jesus is king now! I mean, my, my world changed that day. In a, in, in a remarkable way. I was no longer looking at the world as this, this fallen place that was just heading towards disaster and our only hope was Jesus was to return. I realized that when Jesus came the first time, things that we are waiting for the second coming happened at his first coming. There are so many things that people are looking ahead towards saying, I can't wait for Jesus to come and do this and this and this, that he's already done. Jesus Christ is already on his throne. Jesus Christ already has all authority everywhere. And it's on that authority that he already has that he has commissioned us to go into the world and disciple all the nations. How many? All of them. Well, how can we do that? That's such a huge step. Because he has all authority. And slowly, through this one passage that I read that just clicked for me, I began to look at scripture and go, oh my goodness, I cannot not see post-millennialism everywhere in scripture. It became so apparent that the view of a true, genuine Christian should be one of optimism. And when I say true, genuine Christian, I don't want people to take that the wrong way and think that I'm saying that if you're not a post-millennial, you're not a true, genuine Christian. But what I am saying is that all Christians, all Christians should have an optimistic view on the future. We really should, because the Bible plainly teaches it. The Bible plainly teaches it. Jesus Christ came in the first century. He conquered sin and death. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he was in crowned king. 
We are not waiting for some future date for Jesus to set up a kingdom. We are not out in the streets preaching of some potential king that's coming. He'll be here one day. We want you to put your faith in this king. We're talking to people about a king who's already on his throne. And we're telling them that this is the king and that you must bow your knee. And so I began to read scripture, Psalm 110, Psalm 2, Psalm 22, um, Isaiah 9, Zechariah 14, the book of Revelation, Matthew 24, Matthew 28, Matthew, the beginning of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I began to see all these imminent timestamp statements that indicated to me that Jesus came and set up his kingdom in the first century. No ifs, no ands, no buts about it. And I will tell you that this not only changed my life, but it also revealed to me the absolute devastation of a pessimistic eschatology. I began to see in people that I knew, in people that I loved, in people that I talked to who held to a pessimistic eschatology, how it was affecting the way that they viewed the future and how it was affecting the way that they view who Jesus is right now. Postmillennialism, my friends, changed my life and it was through that that i went down the slippery slope of reformed theology so after i discovered post-millennialism and became a post-millennial i began to investigate reformed theology more deeply than i had and it was very shortly after that that i embraced all five points of calvinism this was back in probably uh, around april of of this past year um yeah that's how long i've been a post-millennial since april really um so yeah uh i i became a five-point calvinist uh the last for me to accept was limited atonement which is now to me the most obvious out of all five and i was like oh my goodness how did i not see it at the time though i do prefer definite atonement i think limited atonement especially as a post-millennial sends a very strong message of something other than what we communicate it's not limited in the sense that it's a small group of people it's limited in the sense that it is definite for a specific people um, and not just a potential salvation right so came more into reformed theology i started studying church history a bit more i started studying the church fathers i started studying uh, Catholicism and Orthodoxy and a lot of these more ancient forms of Christianity to see how they came through the centuries, where they went wrong, why some of the things happened with them that they did, where through the Reformation, these, these wonderful men, men like uh, John Knox, uh, men like John Calvin, Martin Luther, uh, um, William Tyndale, all these different fathers, Jonathan Edwards, the Puritans, I mean, just I'll just say the Puritans. I love the Puritans, right? Um, I started studying all this stuff and really eating it up and saying, I want more of this. I want to know more of this. This is so edifying for my soul. And it was through the, this time that I'm on TikTok and I'm talking about all this stuff. I'm talking about what I'm learning. I'm talking about all these crazy things. And I'm, I'm on uh, a live stream here on my YouTube channel going through Matthew 24. I'm talking about all the all the wonderful things I've been learning about it, and I'm live streaming it. And this guy pops on. Oh, excuse me. This guy pops on. His name is Andrew Davis. Now, many of you know who he is. He pops on, and he goes, hey, this sounds very interesting. Let's talk more about it. So I sent him 
Um, and this, at this point, I was still an amillennial. Um, I sent him an article on why I'm an amillennial, and I laid out the entire structure. And so we began talking through this. And uh, I don't need to go into all the details because Andrew then went on to do his own thing and kind of figure out his eschatology. And I know he was doing a ton of studying. And we were both studying. But then right around the time we both became post-millennial, we came back and we started a group message with uh, Joshua Janier, who was also a post-millennial. And through this time, we really developed as men. I mean, if I could go back to the earliest texts in this group and trace it through... Praise the Lord for what he does because, oh my goodness, you can see his hand and his sovereign grace just guiding us into truth, guiding us into just edifying conversation, iron sharpening iron. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so we're studying the word, we're digging things out, we're going, oh, look at this passage or look at this and, oh, Second Thessalonians, who's the man of lawlessness, stuff like that, right? We're having a great time. So I'm learning about Reformed theology. And then... Something significant happens. I begin to study the sacraments. I begin to study baptism. I begin to study the Lord's Supper. I begin to study um, church history more and how they viewed these sacraments. And I went, oh my goodness, I've got this all wrong. Besides postmillennialism and Calvinism, the most significant change for me in 2020 was my view of the covenants. And specifically, the covenants in their relationship to children. Uh, I'm, I'm winking at you, Jeremiah, short. Um, so I began to study the covenants back quite a number of months ago, maybe four or five months ago. and But was very quiet about it because I didn't want people to know that I was you know, looking into that stuff. Um, so I begin to study this. One of the first things I come to the knowledge of is the Lord's Supper. I realized that really through a guy named Wingley, the Lord's Supper got reduced to a mere memorial when church history before that had never viewed it in such a way. It was always viewed as the real presence of Christ in some way, right? Transubstantiation, the way the Catholics, uh, describe it it was was not really a part of early church history that kind of came a little bit later but the church very much as a whole said christ is present in the lord's supper it's a mystery we don't know how but we are partaking of the body and blood of christ we know that we know that and i was like wow wow this is incredible and it wasn't just the idea that that you know that the real presence of christ is in the eucharist um, but it was really the idea that the Eucharist is not something I'm doing to show Christ my devotion. It's something God is giving to me. It's a grace of God. It's something that God is gifting to me. So when I would go and take of the Eucharist, take of the Lord's Supper, I became very aware that I wasn't going to take part of this to show God, hey, look, I'm remembering you. I remember what you did, Jesus. But rather, I'm going and I'm being gifted a grace of God. And, and that just blew my mind. I started viewing this in such a different way. And I went, okay, well, if I'm viewing it this way, what about baptism? What about baptism? So I start studying baptism. And I kind of come to the conclusion that baptism is the same thing. It's not a public declaration of faith. I would not describe it that way anymore. Baptism is not a public declaration of faith. Baptism is a grace of God. 
Baptism is a grace of God gifted unto a person. It's not something we're doing. It's something God is doing to us. And so right there, the significance of what baptism is goes up. And you start to see it in a sacramental way, um, in, a, in a historical way, I might add. And it be, starts to become something so much deeper than what I believe the Protestant church has really cheapened it in a lot of ways. A lot of Protestant denominations. I'm not going to label all of them. But I think when we say memorial for the Lord's Supper and we say um, merely a sign or a proclamation of faith, we reduce these things that God established, Christ Jesus established, and we make them way less than what they were intended to be. So I started studying these. I came to these conclusions that these are actually graces of God given to us. Um, and I started, started to go, okay, well, what about infants? <laughs> what about infants? What about those people? I know my Presbyterian friends baptize. I know my Anglican friends baptize. What about that? So I began to look into infant baptism on my own and studying it. And... I had kind of put it on the back burner a little bit until I was in a group message on Facebook and my brother Jeremiah said that he was going to be talking about it and um, he announced to me that he was a post-millennial so praise God post-millennial and then he told me hey Jonah my covenant theology is complete now now we just need you to be you know paedo-baptist and your covenant theology will be complete so I'm like, okay, Jeremiah, don't push me. But it sparked something. It really did. It sparked something in my mind. I went, you know what? I want to look into this again. So I began to study it. And what I found was far too compelling for me to deny any longer that children have part of the covenant. Truly. I began to see a continuity in the Old and New Testaments in ways that were just I had overlooked before uh, through ignorance and through uh, the way I had been taught growing up. And so as I studied these things in scripture, I began to see circumcision was the covenant sign of the old covenant. Baptism is the covenant sign of the new covenant. Children were included in circumcision in the old covenant. Children should be included in baptism in the new covenant. I began to see that there is very high chance and it looks very clear in scripture that a lot of these people that were baptized, their families were baptized along with them as a sign and a seal of new covenant members. And I began to see that we cannot correlate baptism with the idea that someone whose baptism were pronouncing them a saved person. That's not what it is. Just as circumcision was not the sign of a saved person, faith in Yahweh was the sign. The circumcision marked their part of the covenant community and the blessings of that community but faith is what seals someone unto salvation in the same way baptism on its own has no salvific uh, merit whatsoever it's faith in jesus christ alone that saves but baptism a grace of god given unto us is a covenant sign by which we take part in the new covenant blessings and ultimately as heads of the household males men of the of the household by baptizing our children we are declaring not only that they are members of the covenant but that we are going to raise them in such a way 
that we treat them as members of the covenant. I began to see the disconnect in churches that practice believer's baptism. There's the attitude that children are not part of the church. Children are not part of the church until they are at a certain age when they can articulate their faith. Children are not part of the covenant until they reach the age when they can partake in the Lord's Supper, when they can be baptized, but they need to make a declaration before they can do these things. So I saw one side that said children are not part of the church, but then the other side that says, yes, but we have Sunday school for your children. We have Awanas for your children. We have groups for your children so they can learn about God. And so my brain started to go, why are we telling our children that they're not part of the church in one, in one area? You can't partake of the sacraments. And then the other side we're saying, but you are part of the church in the sense we're going to raise you in such a way that you're going to be treated like a Christian. Makes no sense. It makes no sense. So through my study of scripture, I came to a very strong conviction. And to this day, I'm even stronger than ever before, is the conviction that children are part of the new covenant. And that means everything. That means that children should be partaking of the Lord's Supper. Children should be partaking of baptism. They should be partaking of the sacraments. And they should be treated as Christians. And we should be raising them as Christians. And ultimately praying that their inclusion in the new covenant church that we would raise them in such a way that would compel them to place their faith wholly in Jesus Christ. This is the responsibility of the Christian men and women of the church. And in the same way we can look back in the old covenant and see the continuity, it was the responsibility of the parents to teach their children the laws of the Lord, to meditate on those laws day and night, and to put their faith in Yahweh. So, this, this big picture, if I can kind of bring things full circle now, I just want to say this. I started out as an agnostic eschatology person, as a very, very fragmented reformed person, and as somebody who had no view, who was a, who was a total credo-baptist, and was very much saying at the beginning of the year, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. I open my hands to you, and I want to receive from you truth. Lead me, Lord. Lead me into all righteousness. Lead me into all truth. And help me to find these things by faith. And looking back, I can see the Lord's provision on me this year. And I can see the Lord's provision in the people he's brought into my life. The provision in the resources he's brought into my life. The provision in the converse, the difficult conversations I've had over this past year. I've talked to a lot of angry people who disagree with me. And it has strengthened my convictions. I started school this year. I started attending the Moody Bible Institute, a very dispensational school. I've had great conversations with some of the students there. I've been able to even talk to some people about postmillennialism. And, and through that, been able to show them that there's different ways of eschatology. I've written papers on postmillennialism, written papers on covenant theology, written articles on infant baptism. And I've gotten mixed reviews and mixed responses, but in the process, my faith has been strengthened and I have prayed that my stuff would be edifying to those around me. It's been beautiful. I started this year in January with three subscribers on this YouTube page. Three subscribers. And after a couple months of not posting, I decided to post my first video. And I began posting regularly. I started up on TikTok 
last year at some point. I started posting on Instagram. Now my TikTok has over 12,000 people. My Instagram has nearly 1,000 people. My YouTube is nearing 500 people. And I just look and I go, Lord Jesus, you have blessed me beyond reason. 2020 has been a remarkable year of growth. My ministry has grown. My relationships have grown. But most importantly, and this is truly what I want to leave you with, my love for Jesus Christ has grown. I have fallen deeper and deeper in love with the person of Jesus Christ. I have fallen deeper and deeper in love with my sovereign God who holds me in his hand and says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. And I know that he is authoring my faith. He is perfecting my faith. And he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion. And so by faith, I trust fall into the arms of Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, by faith, I trust you to lead me as I live my life until you call me home. So friends, this has been my recap of 2020. I hope you've enjoyed listening to me talk. I know it's maybe not that interesting. I'm just talking about the stuff I've kind of learned this year and it's been kind of scattered all over the place, a little technical glitch in the center. But I just want to thank you guys for listening and I want to just say the Lord is very good. He is very good. And I trust that each one of you, when you seek him in faith, he will lead you to truth. He will lead you to truth. And I just want to, I just want to humble myself and say, by no means do I have everything figured out. By no means do I have everything figured out. Just because I'm a post-millennial, I'm reformed, I, I believe in infant baptism now, does not mean anything <laughs> in my standing with God. I'm not trying to share these things with you to, bo to boost myself up, and I hope you know my heart behind this. My heart is just merely to show you, here I was at the beginning of the year, here's where I am now, this is what God has been doing, and oh my goodness, I'm just scratching the surface. I cannot wait to see what he teaches me in the years to come. And I pr my prayer is each one of you watching would have the same experience. That through 2020, you've grown so much as a person. And I pray that God would lead you into all truth as you continue in the future. And so this is the last podcast of 2020. The 20th episode of The Theological Arsonist. What a blessing. 2021 is going to be incredible. I have a lot of plans. I'm working on a lot of new stuff, and I'm hoping that my production level, my my content, everything is going to take it up a notch in 2021. So may the Lord bless you. Jesus Christ is king. He is on the throne, and he is reigning until all enemies have been submitted under his feet. And we, my brothers and sisters in Christ, have the privilege of taking the gospel to all nations. So let us be faithful in doing that with love, with care, and ultimately pointing people to the person of Jesus Christ who reigns as king right now. With that being said, I love you all. God bless.